heard of a story several years back of a group of five men that decided they wanted to do some uh, off-trail hiking through the wilderness of Alaska and using the, the old crude methods uh, before the use of GPSs and things like that. Uh, they had their maps and they had a good old-fashioned compass. Man in the lead, his job was to, to use his machete to cut through the, the undergrowth. The man behind him was uh, holding the map and the, and the compass. Others would eventually take turns switching in that role. But they had journeyed for quite some time, and the man that was navigating was a little perplexed because he wasn't seeing some of the signs around him as far as uh, the mountain ranges being where they should have been based on what the map was saying and what the compass reading was. He stopped for a break, and as they uh, pulled out some provisions to take a little snack and get some water, the man that had been in the lead produced out of his backpack a, a metal pan that had on the bottom of it a very strong magnet. And it was just enough strength and just enough proximity that it was throwing off what the man believed was true north. Needless to say, they made their adjustments and they got back on track. But they thought for quite some time that they were following good direction. In fact, they were very misguided. We see a story of a man like this in our Bibles, don't we? A man who believes he's being directed correctly. In fact, he believes he's following God's word. He believes he's following the one true God in what he's doing. But the own magnet of his flesh, pride, is throwing off the readings. We see God's grace. We see God's grace. Break through and give this man the direction that he desperately needs. You know, if you want God's direction in your life, there are certain things that you must do that I think we can learn from this story. Three things today that I want us to look at. The first one is this. You need to recognize warnings that you are diverting from God's will. There are some signs. There are some things that will happen. And they're not necessarily things outside of yourself but there are things really inside of yourself that often happen. The way we think about things. We tend to believe that we're justified in choices we're making. We believe that we're right in the path that we're taking because of sometimes these mindsets, and yet we could be grossly mistaken and wrong, just as Saul was. First, the thing that we sometimes are thinking and is going on in our mind is this idea of being exceptional. It is easy without saying the words to find yourself feeling like you're an exception to the rules at times. Probably none of us would boast that verbally. We'd be aghast to suggest it. But it is easy for us by our own flesh to think that somehow our situation is unique. And therefore, we begin to block out some warning signs around us that ought to cause us to reassess and examine our lives. Here we have the actions of Saul. We're told in verse 1 
that he was against the disciples of the Lord. Now imagine what's going on here. There is an incredible revival, a spiritual revival that is taking place. It is accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles, such as would attest to the fact that this is of the same God that the Israelites were following all through the Old Testament that Saul of Tarsus is suggesting that he is following. And yet he doesn't choose to put himself immediately under these disciples and become one of them. For a period of time, he sets himself aside and imagines, I'm an exception to what's going on here. The fact that he thought that he was in the right in his position didn't make him so. 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul's writing to young Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus later, and sort of reliving this point in his life, thinking about his conversion experience, and thinking about how he lived very religiously, very zealously as a religious person. And he says, back in that point of time, 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, before I was a blasphemer and a persecutor. He's a blasphemer of Jesus Christ, persecutor of the church. And he says, and injurious, he hurt a lot of people. Stephen, not the least of which is in that category, because he was consenting unto his death, as we saw, when he was stoned. But then these wonderful words follow, but I obtained mercy. Aren't you glad that God allows you and I to obtain mercy? That God looks down at us, and I don't know if he shakes his divine head or not, but the essence of that, and yet his mercies are new every day. But then Paul follows it up with this statement about that. He says, all this happened because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. There were things that I didn't know, but I chose not to know them. I blocked certain things out because I chose not to accept them, not to believe them. And we've all been there. We've all been there at times. And sad to say, sometimes we find ourselves even there as God's children as we're living our Christian life. When you or I don't accept some portion of God's truth, whatever it is, we are guilty of that. Somehow we might begin to say, well, you know, I've got extenuating circumstances. You know, my family is such, my background is such, my health is such. We can go on and on. But if there's something clearly defined in Scripture, and somehow we're sort of passing it off for someone else to take care of, we're falling into this same dangerous zone that Saul finds himself it could be about submission to godly leadership in your life. It might be some unaddressed carnal trait in your life that you just say, well, that's just my personality. But perhaps God's Word addresses it as something that ought not be present. The Bible commends us as believers to be gentle. And so if we have a harshness about us, no matter where it came from, how we learned it, or how long ingrained it's been in us, Friend, I can assure you, it is a mistake to consider yourself an exception to what God's Word is teaching. 
Sometimes I find Christians being just uh, by nature habitually negative in life. We're called to live by faith. And there's a positivity to faith. I'm not talking about this false idea of the power of positive thinking. I'm talking about knowing what God's Word says and having an ability to go forward with a joy and a lightness because you realize, my God's in control. And so I can have joy in my journey and I can have a positive spirit. I used to have a professor in college. He called it a positive faith attitude. We ought to have that. It might be an attachment to the world in some ways. And we somehow redefine the warning that we're given to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That caution is there for every single one of us, and God intends it to remain as intense now as the day that was first penned. And so Saul's first mistake was feeling justified because of exceptionalism, feeling he was an exception. Secondly, we need to recognize that we may be diverting from God's will if we feel justified because of our earnestness. You know, it is dangerous to consider your sincerity as something as indicative of doing God's will. I've heard many people talk about another person who is perhaps kind and conciliatory and generous and benevolent. I mean, wonderful traits in a human being. And yet they have a belief that is clearly not squaring with what God's Word says. And they're very zealous about what they believe. And I'll hear a well-intentioned Christian say, but they seem so sincere. Sincerity is very important, but sincerity will never overrule inaccuracies and falsities. You want to be sincere, but you want to be right in your sincerity. You know, there's been a lot of damage done by people who were very sincere, but sincerely wrong. I remember the story took place back on October 25th, 1964. It was a football game against San Francisco 49ers, the Vikings. Jim Marshall for the Vikings recovered a fumble, and he ran 66 yards the wrong way into his own end zone. Thinking that he had scored a touchdown for the Vikings, Marshall then threw the ball away in celebration. The ball landed out of bounds, resulting in a safety for the 49ers. There is no questioning Jim Marshall's sincerity and his zeal in what he was doing. As his own teammates tried to tackle him. But he was wrong. You cannot question Saul of Tarsus' sincerity in what he's doing. He is very earnest. But in all that earnestness, he is going 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Philippians 3, 6, Paul later again comments about this aspect of his attitude. And as he was talking about his former life, and how you, you, know, you could say a lot of things about me, but I'll tell you certain things you can't say about me. And here in that verse, he says, concerning zeal, or we might say sincerity or earnestness, concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. Talk about going the wrong way. You know, we can be zealous or earnest 
and be very wrong. James 1.25 tells us that whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that's our Bible, folks. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. This is how we know that our earnestness is well-founded, well-placed. Because we're regularly looking into this book. We're staring into it and wanting it to reflect back on us. Lord, what does this mean and how does this impact me personally? I want to be earnest, but I want to be earnestly right for your glory. Thirdly, another way a person, and Saul definitely was, an attitude he had was feeling of endorsement, or we might say entitlement. It's not enough to have the confirmation of some great spiritual leader. We're told in verse 1 that Saul did what he was doing under the jurisdiction and the approval of the high priest. Folks, religiously speaking, among the people of God, you couldn't look for a more important person to put their stamp of approval on what you're doing than God's high priest. But in this case, the high priest was grossly wrong. It was the high priest that brought about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what your title is, doesn't matter what your position is, doesn't matter how many books you might have written, how, how acclaimed you are, how many stadiums you might fill. You can have all of that. That doesn't make you right in being able to state what people ought to do. In Matthew 3, 9, Jesus addresses the attitude that the Jewish people had. They were thinking, how can we be wrong? Think about our ethnicity. He says, And ye think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Hey, I mean, that's, that's great, but that's not enough. God can change inanimate rocks. Jesus needed to take them down a little peg or two based upon who they thought they were. Are we looking to be sanctified by God in our Christian life or gratified by the world. You can always find a religious person who will sympathize with your position if you look long enough. And this will happen in churches sometimes. You know, I feel this way strongly, and you start talking around you know, in the congregation or in the community, and you'll find someone that says, yeah, I think the way you think, and that's all you need. Well, this person's a prayer warrior. This person reads their Bible. I mean, it's, their Bible is very dog-eared. And, and, and they have a son that's a missionary on the field. And, and they believe the way I do. But we ought to be Bereans and search the Scriptures to see if these things be so. Secondly, we need to respond to correction when you are defying God's will. Comes a point where Saul is confronted here in a very dramatic fashion. And let me just hasten to say, we should not expect a bright light and a voice from heaven every time we need to be diverted back to where we're supposed to be. Okay? I'm reminded of what Abraham said to the rich man 
when he lifted up his eyes in hell and he said, can you please send Lazarus back to earth to tell my family so that they won't come to this torment where I am? And Abraham's words, which were heavenly words, he said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they've got Bibles. If they won't listen to what the Word of God is saying, they won't believe someone that comes back from the dead. We sometimes think something sensational happening, and God does do it at times in the Bible and even still in life. But we shouldn't expect that or demand that. God has given us everything we need right here in these 66 books. For all of God, Paul's good intentions and spirituality, it certainly must have been difficult to face the fact that what he was doing and had been doing so earnestly was actually against God's will. I mean, he had to face it. I have been blowing it. I have been so wrong. And I don't even have to ask for a raise of hands. And I know what the response would be. You know, how many of us love to discover and admit, I have been wrong? None of us like that feeling. I mean, Jesus says to him straight away, Persecutest thou me? There's this question. It's almost like Jesus is incredulous with them. What are you doing? Do you realize what you're doing here? That idea of persecuting, say, how is he persecuting Jesus? Jesus has already gone back to heaven. And, you know, can anyone really, you know, be a threat to God? So what is Jesus saying here in this way? The word persecution literally has the meaning of following with the intention of frustrating. Following with the intention of frustrating. It kind of, in my mind, I envision... You know, a brother that has a younger sister, or you can reverse it. I'm not picking genders here, okay? But there's a child and has a younger sibling, and the older child maybe has some sort of of toy, and maybe it's an age-appropriate toy. But the little one, this, this little sibling, desperately wants to play with it. I mean, is enchanted with this toy. And the older sibling appeals to a parent, you know, Mom, they won't leave me alone. I'm trying to play with this. And Mom says, you know, that's a, that's a big boy toy. You'll grow into it someday. Mom goes away. You'd think that's enough, but the younger sibling continues to walk around and pester and pester and pester. Why? I'm going to make sure you don't enjoy playing with that toy if I can't play with that toy. Would there be such thoughts in Christendom? Yes. We need to make sure that we are not having that attitude of frustrating, working against what God is actually trying to do. And we can't stop it, because nothing can stop what God is doing. Amen? But it's wrong within us. I'm reminded of what the man Gamaliel said in Acts chapter 5, he's speaking at the trial of the apostles there, and we, we looked at that several weeks back. And, and he, and I believe God's hand was upon him, whether he realized it or not in what he said, he, Gamaliel, advises the Jews to be careful how they handle these men. 
He says, if their message is actually false, as they're talking about this Jesus Christ, it will eventually die out. It'll come to naught. But if their message is true, you do not want to oppose them. And this is what he says in verse 39 of Acts 5. Lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. You know what? That's what Saul was guilty of up until this point. He is fighting against God. Sometimes we may be guilty of that, even as his children. When we say, I know what God, or I'm afraid what God might want me to do, and I, and I don't want to consider it. And so we sort of block our minds from even thinking about it, whatever it might be, some area of service. And then we come to that point of confrontation. God exhorts us somehow. Could be an annoying preacher on a Sunday morning that just has a way of just hammering home a point, and you're sitting there squirming in your chair, you know, and you realize, well, I can't be too mad at the preacher. It's really the Holy Spirit that's working me over. What's being said is true, and it's based in Scripture. And so if we're ever going to have any hope, we have to come to the place where we say, Lord, I've been wrong. I have been wrong. Praise God, things can be made right. Amen? Paul could have dismissed the event as not of God since it opposed how he had been taught all his life. I mean, this is the way I was brought up in the synagogue. Are you going to tell me that everything I've learned all through my life is wrong and that the high priest is wrong? Can that really be so? And the answer we know categorically is yes. That is all wrong. Let's learn from this, folks. It is a beautiful thing when you see any person, a lost person admitting, I've been wrong, and they come to the Lord Jesus Christ humbly and receive Him. That has to happen, by the way. You, you can't truly be saved without somehow acknowledging, at least within, I have been wrong, and this is what I now need. I need Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and life. Anything else, it's an inaccurate substitute. It won't get you there. But even people that are believers. Some of you may remember many years back we had a, a gentleman come to our church by the name of Bob Gerganus. He's now with the Lord. He was in a tragic car accident. I say tragic. It was appointed by God, but rough for his, his widow. Bob Gerganus, when he started attending the church, he came to me and he says, he says, now I've been going to a different kind of, of church. And he told me the, the name of it and the, the kind of denomination it was. Immediately I knew where he was headed because I knew the particular belief system that believed that immersion, baptism by immersion, was not only a right step of obedience that every Christian ought to take after they're saved, but they taught that you had to be baptized by immersion in order to be saved and therefore making it a work of salvation. And this had been just built into him, just to, you know, burned into him for decades of being in this church. I said, Bob, let's just do this. I'm going to put together some scriptures, and I'm going to give them to you, and we'll sit down and talk about them. So I wrote out a bunch of scriptures that I knew would be of help, and I gave them to him, and I said, let's plan a week from today to get together. Went over to his house that night, and he had his Bible out. He had printed out the verses on printer off of his computer. He had all kinds of handwriting, all scrolled around it and so forth like that. He said, Preacher, 
He says, there's not much for us to talk about. And I thought, oh, man, he's got his mind made up. He says, no. He said, I read the scriptures. He says, I see it. I have been wrong. And he said, in fact, I'm a little mad. I'm like, why are you mad? He says, because I realize I've been lied to all these years. And he said, preacher, he says, will you baptize me again the right way? And he humbled himself in front of our church, but he was glad to do it. Oh, may I learn from Bob Gerganus. May you learn from Bob Gerganus. There was such joy in that man. And there is such joy that we find in Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul in the same way. But let me hasten to name the third point, and that is that there is a need to represent the qualities of the one who is doing God's will. Been sort of on the negative side. This is what you need to watch out for in the warnings. But what do we see positively? There's five qualities that, that Paul will exhibit while seeking and doing God's will. The first one is submission. He says in verse 6, What wilt thou have me to do? I'm yours to command. And our submissive spirit can be seen when we ask, not when we assume. That's tough for us to do, folks. It is easy for us, the longer we walk with the Lord as Christians and as His children, we begin to assume certain things. Can I tell you, it is important, no matter how long you've been a child of God, to keep in the asking mode. To always have the Spirit, Lord, what would you have me to do today? And a spirit of submission by its very nature, means that we have to be willing to accept the answer, no. <laughs> it's easy when we get the yes, right? We had a wonderful wedding here. We talked about in the preliminaries as I was counseling Sarah and Daniel, the importance of submission. Of course, there in Ephesians 5, it talks about the, the wife submitting to her husband. But we also understand that there is a, a mutual submission that happens in the family of God and in families. I remember telling Daniel, I said, you won't be a good husband if you try to have everything your way. I said, you're called upon to love your wife and build into love is the idea of sacrifice, meaning I'm not primarily interested in getting my way. But what is best for my wife? It's wonderful to see a young couple that gets it. That doesn't mean that there isn't still a struggle. Any of us that have been married any number of years understand that. But here's the truth. James 4, 6 says, He giveth more grace, and that's what we need to do these things. He giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Keep a humble spirit. Be broken before the Lord. Don't think yourself too grand or too experienced in the Christian life that you don't still need to be able to be brought down a peg or two by the Lord Jesus Christ from time to time. Be ready to accept no. I don't get my way. Secondly, there was a seriousness about Saul. It says in verse 9 that three days went by and he didn't eat or drink. Now, I don't think that meant that he had lost his appetite. I think Paul had an intense desire to know and to do God's will, and it caused him to deny himself normal food and beverage. Nothing else, including the savoriest thing that you could bring to me, is going to distract me from focusing on what I've just gone through and what it means moving forward. 
Job had this spirit when he went through his trials. In Job 23, 12, it says, I have esteemed the words of his mouth, talking about God, more than my necessary food. And most of us, we're always thinking about our next meal. You know, when we plan our vacations, we're thinking, what kind of restaurants will be there? And we understand God's given us things richly to enjoy, the bounty of the earth. There's nothing wrong with enjoying that and returning thanks to God for that. But I do think that sometimes we get so caught up in our creature comforts that we lose a seriousness about the things of God that will matter for all eternity. When's the last time we were so intent on discerning God's will that we by bypass normal routines? And for some of us, it's like, well, you know, I have dietary issues and it would be crucial if I, you know, it'd be very detrimental if I skipped a meal or something like that. Okay. There's other categories that fit in the same thing. How about cutting out something else? Television. Or media of some sort. You know, cut the cord, so to speak, spiritually. So you know what, I just, I just, this is such a serious issue. I need to get away from all distractions. And you know what, I might have some impulses and some urges that will be sort of yelling internally at me, but I'm going to say no to them because this is too important. We have lost in Christianity and our culture today a seriousness about the things of God, folks. We need to return to it. We also see a subjection in the Apostle Paul. Verse 17, Ananias tells him, the Lord hath sent me. Here is another human being. Now, it's one thing to see this brilliant light and hear a voice from heaven and saying, okay, I can follow that. But now here just a normal guy knocks on his door and said, you know, who are you? Well, God sent me, and you need to do what I tell you to do. And yet God has, through his word, over and over again, established and ordained people that he puts into our life and says, I don't want you just to yield to me and say, you know, uh, piously, I'm following God. Because you can't really follow me if you don't follow the people that God has put as authorities in steps above you as well. Again, talking about marriage, the Bible says the head of every woman is her husband, but the head of every husband is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. And God tells us, hey, how do you look at those police officers? Well, you look at them as, as ministers of God that are there for your benefit and blessing. And you can't say, I'm a devout Christian, and say, but I'm going to ignore the laws of the land. We couldn't build this building and say, well, we're going to skirt the zoning ordinances because we're here to obey God. There needs to be a subjection. I remember someone, a preacher, telling me this. I guess this is a, a true situation out west. He was from out west, and he, he loved to uh, break uh, wild horses, catch them in the wild. And, and uh, these cowpunchers, I guess is what they called them, and uh, cowboys, they had a method that I thought was very interesting. Rather than do all the work themselves, at least this one guy, decided to take this, this wild steer that he had in this case and tied it up to an old burrow. And this wild steer, you know, was just flailing and, you know, moving about and stuff, but that, that burrow was just steadfast and stubborn. And they just let it go off, you know, 
And after a long period of time, back came this burrow with a much more pensive steer. And I think God honestly puts us and links us and yokes us together with certain individuals in our life just to keep us corralled spiritually a little bit. Because we can still be quite carnal. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. God has ordained that we be accountable to others. Subjection. Also, there is the idea of suffering. The Jews took counsel to kill him in verse 23. We didn't read this far, but if you glance down there, you'll see it says that. And we understand Job. Again, going back to Job, good example of suffering. Job's mind, we always bring Job to mind when we think of suffering, probably. But what was Job's mindset in the middle of his suffering? He said in Job 23.10, He, being God, knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. You know, metals are inanimate. They can't feel pain. But he likened himself to that smelting process where the gold had to be softened so that the dross could rise to the top, so it could be skimmed off, so the resulting metal would be much more valuable. Give you another example. Lumberjack was telling about how they would separate trees that they fell in their work. He said, because... Uh, this guy was watching him, and he knows that they were making different piles. He says, what's the difference in these piles? Because they're the same kind of trees. They were both spruce trees. And he says, well, I'll tell you what. Over here, we're making piles of logs that came from trees that were grown on the mountain. But over here, we're making piles of logs that were grown in the valley. He says, what difference does that make? He says, well, down in the valley, you know, it's much more ease. The, the conditions are not as fierce and so forth like that he says but up on the mountain there's high winds and brutal winters and all sorts of things like that he says and what we have found is that the grain in the wood where the timber has been subjected to much more harshness and difficulties he says it ends up being a much sturdier form of boards that we cut from it you know isn't it obvious when you're going through a difficult time, that while it's very hard at the moment, that you find a timber about your spirituality down the road, and God says, now I can use you. And you're wondering, God, why did you put me through this? Why did you ordain this trial? Why did you let this happen? And God might be just suggesting, I'm trying to grow you on a mountain so that I can build, use you as a board in my work it will be much stronger than if you had just given a life of comfort and ease. Suffering is ordained by God. But then, fifthly, we see serenity. At the end of the chapter, or towards the end of the chapter, verse 31, it says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee, and they were edified. You know, though you and I may be in tribulation when doing God's will, Godly people around you and I will not be troubled by us when we're going through those times. There will be a sweetness as we yield to God's direction, His grace in our life. Yet there is a struggle. You're sitting here thinking, yes, preacher, you're talking about doing the will of God, looking for divine direction, and I know it's good and I know it's best. 
You say, but I almost feel like a tug of war is going on. And you're right. There is the flesh and there is the spirit. There is a story about a teenager by the name of Caroline McDonald. She lived in Virginia. She found a two-headed turtle behind her home. She said that the two heads did a tug-of-war over a piece of meat when she was feeding them. According to scientists, two-headedness can occur in all animals, but the survival rate is very short. The reason is that each head tends to work independently of the other, controlling its own side of the body, creating disunity, confusion, and frustration. And in the church, there's only room for one head, and it's Jesus Christ. There needs to be a spirit of saying, Jesus, for me to live is you. For me to live is Christ. Galatians 5.17 talks about this struggle. It says, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. It desires against it, just like a two-headed turtle. Only it's more brutal because it's inside of us. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. And Jesus explained the same thing. He said nobody can serve two masters. It's not possible, not simultaneously. He says here's what's going to happen. For either that person will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other, And when he drives the point home, he tells us, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot say, I'm going to live for God and live for yourself. You must die daily. You must be crucified with Christ. You have to say, it's not about me. It's about him. Even though there is this strong impulse inside of every one of us, Friend, you desire divine direction. I believe if you know Christ as your Savior, there is a yearning in every sincere Christian that says, yes, I want divine direction. But are you willing to pay the cost for it? Are you willing to say, I will not only make a promise today, but I will renew every day by God's grace. Help me to live for Christ and not for myself. And with God's grace and with the direction of the Bible, Friend, you can do so to God's glory. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for its instruction. Thank you that you have given to us clear guidance. Lord, may we seek that wisdom which is from above. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Father, I just ask that there would be a humbleness about us brokenness about us not just now while we're seated here in the auditorium of anchor baptist church but lord there would be a renewal of this mind as we go into every single day as we're walking through the day may we realize the importance and the value of this mindset and lord may we taste and see that you are good as we follow your direction May all this bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's turn together to hymn number 124. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine will the glory be. Lest I forget a whole bunch of things. Lead me to Calvary. Let me just tell you that the words of that hymn are very true. I find...
that when I get a little too full of myself, the best remedy is to mentally go back to the cross. And I can't help but be ashamed of myself for wanting what Carl Wood wants when I see Jesus Christ laid aside everything for me. I mean, how can I not give him what I have, which is myself? That's what you have to do. Maybe today you've been a little too full of yourself and you say, I haven't been sensing God's divine direction in my life. You need to be led back to the cross. You need to purpose in your mind and heart by God's grace to live every day going back to the cross. God wants to give you divine direction. He does. His words that light unto your feet. But we have to be yielded. As we sing, maybe some of you just need to come and kneel at the altar and just have a word of, of commitment, of repentance, surrender to the Lord. You can do business with God there in your seat, however the Holy Spirit leads you, but be obedient to His leading today. Maybe you're hearing you say, Pastor, you talked about coming to Christ, knowing Him as your Savior, and I don't think I'm there yet. Oh, friend, if you'll come during the invitation, I would love to partner you with one of our trained counselors who will lovingly and sweetly show you in God's Word how you can be saved today. Be a child of God. You say, you don't understand what I've done. Well, I understand what Saul of Tarsus did, and it was pretty egregious, pretty horrendous. And God's grace was sufficient for him to save him. Paul even said, I'm the chief of sinners. God can save him through Jesus Christ. He can save you. No matter how proud you've been, how long you've been avoiding him, resisting him, God's ready to save you today. Will you come? Will you come to Jesus? He loves you. We would love to help.